all of us from the moment of our birth are in the process of dying, which is another way of saying preparation for heaven itself. When I was a young man in high school, I decided to come to this monastery because I felt that was the best way to prepare for heaven. Hi, I'm Brother Colby. And I'm Brother Joel. You're listening to Echoes from the Bell Tower. Stories of wit and wisdom from Benedictine monks who live, work, and pray in southern Indiana. Our episode opened with a quote from a St. Meinrad monk who died in January 2017, Father Rupert Ostig. He was interviewed for a video on the infirmary renovation back in 2015. We opened our episode with Father Rupert because today we are talking about monastic funeral practices, and we'll be using audio collected from his funeral mass and burial. St. Meinrad does a really great job of remembering a monk when he dies. Stories begin to come out and are told in the community for years. With this episode, we hope to honor the life and memory of Father Rupert with some stories of who he was. Like this one from Father Julian Peters. One of my distinct memories of Father Rupert is when I had entered the community as a novice, and he was the general manager of the Abbey Press. And one afternoon, early on, at the beginning of our novitiate, there were four of us, we were assigned to go down to the press for a tour with Father Rupert. And he took us through every part of every building in the press, He knew everyone by name, where they came from, who they were married to, who their children were, how long they had worked with us. And it was just amazing. And that was just so typical of Father Rupert, the way he was able to maintain and manage information, but in a very personal way. And 35 years later, that is a very vivid memory of Father Rupert. So who was Father Rupert? He grew up in Elgin, Illinois, a suburb north of Chicago. During his 72 years as a monk of St. Meinrad, he held a lot of positions of responsibility and leadership. He was treasurer of the Arch Abbey for 31 years and served as the business manager. Here's Arch Abbot Kurt with a story. Father Rupert was one of the first ones, this is back in the 70s, one of the first ones to kind of master the electronic calculator. And it would always be amused when he would pull that out at uh, community meetings because, you know, for us at that time, he just didn't do that kind of thing. But um, he was always very precise when giving financial reports to the penny, more so than we ever wanted to hear, (laughs) you know. 2,426.7, approximately. He also served as the publisher and general manager of Abbey Press. Joan Lasher, who is a co-worker in the development office, has a story about working for Father Rupert. Anyone who ever knew him knows that he was particular and he liked things just so-so. When he became the general manager of Abbey Press, I was his secretary. I had not worked in an office for very long, so when I stapled papers... My staples would be, you know, straight, kind of parallel with the top of the page. Well, one day he called me into his office and he showed me the correct way to staple, which was to have the staple at an angle with the corner of the page so when you folded the paper over it wouldn't tear. 
That was more than 30 years ago, probably more like 38, I don't know. And to this day, I always staple at an angle. He was one of the sweetest and kindest people I have ever met. And I'm glad I knew him and had the privilege to work for him. Father Rupert was the extraordinary confessor for the seminary and school of theology during the last 16 years of his life. He often talked about how that was such a blessing for him, but it was also a blessing for the people who came to him. Here's Father William Burmester. He graduated from the seminary last May. Father Rupert was the confessor for the seminary on Saturdays, and so I would go to him often, and everyone always talked about him because he gave a big hug after each confession. And um, one time, my grandma and my parents were here, and I went to confession, and my grandma wanted to go. And so she went into confession, and she came out all smiling and beaming, and she just kept saying, what a holy man. And I was like, yeah, he is. And she said, and the way he gives you a hug afterwards, like, I've never seen a priest do that. And I thought that was going to be it. But then a couple months later, my grandma asked about Father Rupert. How is he doing? And I said, well, he's doing good. And next time I see him, I'll tell tell him that you were asking about him. And I didn't even have to tell Father Rupert that she was asking. He asked about my grandma. And so I felt like a middleman for about a year there, every couple months of telling Father Rupert or my grandma that they were saying hello to each other. There was a holy friendship almost between them, and I was the middleman, so that was really special. I hope you're beginning to understand a little bit about who Father Rupert was. We'll have some more stories for you later. Father Rupert was active in the community until the moment he died. He was actually getting ready for morning prayer at 5 a.m. on January 14th, 2017, when God called him home. If you're not familiar with St. Meinrad, the monastery has an infirmary wing that is staffed with nurses 24 hours a day to care for the elderly or sick monks. Father Rupert was still independent at 95, but he lived in the infirmary. Nowadays, it's rare for monks to die outside of the monastery. Occasionally, there is a tragedy, like a car accident, or a monk will die while away on an assignment or on the way to the hospital. But more often than not, a monk will die at home at St. Meinrad. That's thanks to the wonderful care that we receive in the infirmary, and to those benefactors who made the infirmary renovation possible. Here's Father Julian again. There is a value of being able to, to complete the journey of this life where you have lived it in the company of those with whom you have lived it. And rather than in a strange or foreign place. And sometimes that's necessary that monks do die in hospitals. Um, But there is a particular value that when it's possible, when we can make that happen, of being able to allow a monk to die at home. When it becomes apparent that a monk is dying, We put a sheet on the bulletin board in the monastery, and monks sign up to sit with the dying monk and keep vigil. That might be to sit quietly, to pray, or to read. The importance of sitting with the dying reinforces that element that we make this journey of life in faith together. We go with them as far as we can, supporting them with our prayers, uh, with our presence, with our love, until they cross that threshold, and then... Then it's up to the saints and the angels to take their hand and to lead them forward 
to the presence of God. And I think it's a particular grace to be present with someone when they draw that last breath and when they, they cross that threshold. I remember not too long ago, our Father Ilred was dying. And Father Ilred was a scholar of many languages, uh, many of the languages being those that we can't even say because their alphabet is all kinds of curly cues and squiggly cues. Well, one of the languages that Father uh, Ilred knew was Hebrew. And so at one point, Father Harry, our Old Testament teacher, went in and was spending some time with Father Ilred reading the Psalms in Hebrew. And uh, again, I, you know, I couldn't help but think, what a great comfort this has got to be to Father Ilred, because Father Ilred would know the Psalms in Hebrew back and forth. A couple of our younger monks went in and uh, tried to say the Our Father in Latin and got through about three quarters of it and then started messing it up. And Father Elroy was laying there dying, laughing, because it just it was so absurd to him, you know, that somebody would mess up on the Our Father in Latin. But again, just a very human thing, you know, he wouldn't have laughed if there wasn't something peaceful, if there wasn't something familial about that whole experience. Um, so it was just a beautiful moment. So what happens when a monk dies? Archbishop Kurt will help explain some of our traditions. Well, the tradition is the very first thing uh, we toll the bells. Basically, that's our way of notifying uh, as many of the monks as possible as soon as possible. If a monk dies in the middle of the night, Father Abbott will break the news to the monks before morning prayer, and the bells will toll when prayer is over. But let's say, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, a monk dies. Okay, we would toll the bells one toll for every year that the monk has been in the monastery. And that can get quite long. So you might start out with a bell tolling for 75 times. And then all the bells peal for five minutes. When the bells peal, it represents the deceased monk's entry into eternal life. When the death toll begins, you will often see monks drop what they're doing and come to the church to pray. The bell is tolled again on the 30th day after a monk dies, and then again on the one-year anniversary. After the death toll, very practical things take place. Next of kin are notified, and arrangements are made. Archbishop Kurt will write the death notice, which is a trifold card that is set out during the funeral service. The death notice is a biography of the monk's life, including some personal details about who the monk was. Archbishop Kurt has been writing the death notices since 2010, and Archbishop Daniel Beekline, who died in January, was Abbot Kurt's 23rd death notice to write. I've really experienced it as a privilege and an honor, uh, because all of these people that have died, of course, I've known for now, for you know, 20 years, 40 years. So it's a good deal of knowledge and a good deal of encounters and experiences with them. And it's pretty easy to put the facts down. I mean, you know, like in this year he started doing this, and in this year he started doing that. But it's an especial honor and a privilege to try to write those couple of paragraphs that really will give some color to the person. 
that, you know, 20 years from now or, or four or five years from now, somebody who never met this monk will pick up the card and, okay, he'll see he worked at the Abbey Press or, you know, in the business office. That's all well and good. But, oh, look at this. Oh, this is the kind of person he was. Oh, this is, this is what the confairs mean when they talk about Father Rupert in this way. And it's also a nice part of the closure for me as abbot to say, in a sense, sign off on the death. Some monks keep every death notice for each monk who has died during the 40, 50, or 60 years they lived in the monastery. When the monastic community gathers for the main meal of the day, a monk will read the necrology, and we learn about monks who were here before us. Here's Father Julian. So that is, for instance, on the 10th day of February, we remember all those who have gone before us with the sign of faith, especially father or brother so-and-so who died in our monastery in 1800-something, 1900-something, 2000-and-something. And there's a, a short paragraph that recounts where he was born, lived, what his principal work was for the community. Many times, the readings will have interesting little reminders of the monk's character. There is one. Brother was known as a kind and jovial um, man who spent most of his life working in the wine cellar. And, of course, everybody chuckles because you know, he was kind and jovial because he was working in the wine cellar and nipping at the wine. But, so there are those kind of human angles, but those pieces do live on. Just like in any family, storytelling helps us grieve, and it's also how we celebrate the monk's life. It gives us opportunity to verbalize and to process what's happened, that someone whom we have known in this life Maybe it's someone whom we have loved dearly. Maybe it's someone who we didn't particularly like, but with whom we still shared this life and our work. We recognize that they have a, a place, and they're part of the legacy of, of this place. They're part of our history. And maybe that's one of the unique things about monastic life, too. The stability that keeps us here, it, it keeps those memories here, and it keeps those, those lives alive in a way that maybe, you know, some other populations can't. I got to know Rupert, I guess, best by living next to him almost all of my 70 years of professed life in the monastery. Somehow or other, as we moved from place to place, as I moved from place to place, I would always be running into him. He would be next door. He would be beyond the drape. It was just incredible. In fact, it got to be kind of a joke with the rest of us, you know, that, that here we go again. <laughs> so that when we moved over here into the, this monastery, we were asked where we might like to go if the, that facility were available. And I said, you know, I have no special preference, except it might be a relief to be a little far distant from <laughs> some of the confrères and so forth, and mentioned one in particular. And uh, that was fine. I moved into my cell, and uh, shortly thereafter, Father Donald Walpole died, and his kind of studio-like uh, cell up on the second floor where I was, became available, and Father Rupert moved in. 
you know, I said, here we go again. <laughs> he had a curious habit of scavenging our discarded clothing shelves for clothing for himself. So on a fairly regular basis, he would show up with um, bright red trousers held up by purple suspenders with a uh, diagonal blue, orange, and green shirt. (laughs) Just absolutely astonishing to look at. But that was his wardrobe. He, he was a person who was not about to go out and spend money on stuff he didn't need when other clothes, maybe not as fashionable, but when other clothes were available. He just didn't do that. My family came to visit, and we had a little gathering over here at one of the, the guest houses. And Father Rupert came to join us, uh, my family, and so he was going to come over and have you know cookies and punch or whatever. And my niece was three, and uh, Father Rupert comes over. At the time, he's 83, but he says to her, you know, what's your name? Maggie. How old are you, Maggie? Three. Well, I'm 83. Her eyes got real big. I don't think she'd ever met anybody that old. I'm not sure she had any idea what 83 meant. But uh, <laughs> she, as soon as she turned up and looked at him, she, she became very fascinated by him. And then they struck up a conversation. And I think he talked to my three-year-old niece for half an hour. I don't know. They, they really talked. And he was just enjoying himself. And she was obviously kind of enamored with him. And it was really funny because after my family left and went back home, my brother called and he said that Maggie just kept talking about Father Rupert and I love Father Rupert and that she would say that and she drew him pictures and sent him things in the mail and it was just adorable. And so uh, that's another wonderful memory I have of Father Rupert. The first story was from Father Gavin Barnes, who died shortly after Father Rupert on February 6, 2017. And the following stories were from Archabbot Kurt and Father Christian Rabb. Back to our funeral practices. The body is brought back into the monastery in a very simple wooden casket. One of the monks used to make the casket by hand, but for the last five years or so, Abbey Casket has provided them. We hold the visitation and the office of the dead the evening we receive the body. The Office of the Dead is a solemn prayer service that begins with the monks processing in carrying the casket. If you're in the Archabbey Church, you can faintly hear the monks chanting as they process through the monastery, and it gets louder as they get closer to the church. The next morning, we have the funeral liturgy, which is a lot like any other Catholic funeral liturgy. One difference is that the monks sing a verse from the Psalms that has a very special meaning to us. It's called the sushi pay. Here's Father Julian. Uphold me, O Lord, according to your promise, and I shall live, and do not confound me in my expectation. 
That versicle is sung by the monk at the time of his final vows. And so it is a prayer of completely giving ourselves over to God. The Sushipe is sung at, at Jubilees as a symbolic renewal of that promise of those vows. And then the reason that we have adopted it here as part of the, the song of farewell at that point in the liturgy is because that is the culmination. That it, it, the, the bodily death is the, the conclusion of that journey. And that we pray now that that prayer is really accomplished. Lord, that you have upheld him according to your promise and that now he lives in you and he is that he not be confounded in any of his hope or expectation. After the funeral liturgy, we process to the cemetery. Our brother Rupert has gone to his rest in the peace of Christ. Having persevered in the monastic life until death, he has, through patience, shared in the suffering of Christ, so as to be deserving also to share in his kingdom. We lower the casket down into the ground by hand, and the abbot throws a shovelful of dirt from the grave on the coffin. You know, it's falling a distance of five or six feet, so it makes a rather noticeable clunk. Again, just a reminder to us um, of the finality of this stage of a person's life and the reality of what we're doing here and what we're hoping for the future. Ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, we commend to Almighty God our brother Rupert and we commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The burial ends with everyone having the opportunity to sprinkle the casket with holy water. Then we leave the cemetery and have a meal for the family and friends who have come to the funeral. Death brings out the best of us in so many ways. And I think that's certainly true in us as individuals, but as a community in our rituals and our observance, uh, that... That's, that's one of the moments when we're at our finest, is when we are commending a soul to God and committing their body to the earth, which we do very plainly and very clearly um, with sign and symbol, and I think we do very well. Death plays an important role in the life of a monk. There is a noted difference in the way we approach death than society at large. We are ordinarily not upset. Uh, we see death as a natural process. As a couple of my monk friends have said, you know, it, it's the last monastic assignment every one of us will have. That's the, the monastic assignment, assignment we all share. That puts it in a specific context for us. Death is symbolized when a monk makes solemn vows and becomes a permanent member of the monastic community. There's a moment in the ceremony where the monk lays on the floor and is covered by the funeral pall, and the verse that is sung says, Now I am dead, and my life is hidden in Christ. It's about death to the ways of this world, uh, of the concerns of this world, and giving ourselves more completely over to life in Christ. Uh, if we have died with him, we will rise with him. 
St. Benedict teaches us about death in chapter 4 of his rule. Father Thomas's favorite translation of this is by Placid Murray, a monk of Glenstall Abbey. He's an Irish monk, so he has a little bit different take on it. He starts with, To fear judgment day, to be terrified of hell, to yearn for eternal life with all spiritual longing, to look death daily in the eye, and every moment to keep guard over the actions of one's life, to know for certain everywhere that God is looking at one. That phrase in the middle, to look death daily in the eye, or as it more strictly translated, to keep death daily before one's eyes, is not spelled out any more clearly than we had in just those first few verses. And the way that I interpret it is you never know when you are going to die. And something that a monk can do as a spiritual practice is to act as if today is your last day alive. And I did this for a while, and I do it once in a while again. I imagine that tonight I am going to pass away very gently and peaceably in my sleep. It sounds macabre, but something amazing happens when you do this. You are focused immediately on what is happening right now. You are living completely in this moment. Today becomes the most important day of your life. All the little things around you start to glow with a new importance and value. They become precious because this might be the last time you're in this room or the last conversation you have with this one, the last time you pray this psalm in community. It makes you immediately grateful for all the things that you have, not just the big things in your life, but all the things right there in front of you right now. St. Benedict teaches us to keep death daily before our eyes, so we are always prepared to be called home. And so that's not just for monks, but indeed for, for any Christian, um, that to remember that we're about something more than this life and what we have here. And this isn't the, the end of it all, even at time of bodily death, that there is more. And that's what our goal is to be able to enter into eternity and inherit um, the gift of salvation. When I was preparing for solemn vows, I went down to the cemetery basically every day on my retreat before solemn vows, in a way looking at not just the place where former confreres have been buried, but to see the larger community that I'm joining and to see the place where I've promised to end up if I stay in the monastery until death, which I promise to do, that that will be my final resting place. You get to pick a new cell in the upstairs of the monastery when you make solemn vows, but at the same time as you pick that new cell, somehow silently, a cell below the ground is being prepared for you as well. I was so happy to move into my cell upstairs like a big monk. And I must believe that in the end, 
it will be a joyful thing to go to the final cell, which is not really down below, but is in the Father's house next to all of my brothers from St. Meinrad. Thank you for listening to our episode on monastic funeral practices. We have a couple more stories about Father Rupert and a story about a mishap during a funeral on our blog at stmeinrad.edu slash echoes. You should check them out. <laughs> Today's podcast was edited and produced by Krista Hall with the help of Brother Joel Blaze, Brother Colby Wolnikowski, Brother William Sprower, Mary Jean Shoemaker, Jim Paquette, Tammy Sheeter, and Christian Mozek. The music for this podcast was written and produced by Brother Joel. Thank you, Archabbot Kurt Stasiak, Father Julian Peters, and Father Thomas Grykowski for talking to us about death. Thanks also to Father Christian Rabb, Brother William Sprower, Brother Simon Herman, Father William Burmester, Janice Stopp, Joan Lasher, Krista Newman, Mike Grimmelsbacher, and the late Father Gavin Barnes for sharing your memories of Father Rupert. We have two more episodes planned for this spring, and we're working on more episodes for the fall. If you have enjoyed Echoes from the Bell Tower, tell your friends and subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. In this episode, you heard us mention Abbey Caskets. If you'd like to know more about this ministry of St. Minard, check out their website at abbeycaskets.com. It's called the sushi, sushi pay. Sushi It's called the sushi pay. Here's Father Julian. I didn't say that right. Did I? Right. Su- sushi, like sushi, sushi fish, and then pay is in like God pay for that sushi. <laughs>